Hi, welcome to The Landscape, a Cranes Cleveland podcast. We're glad you can join us. I'm your host, Dan Paletta. Cleveland's loss is the nation's gain as Margaret Mitchell, after a decade of serving as the president and CEO of the YWCA of Greater Cleveland, is now moving on to become the CEO of the YWCA USA. We're glad she can join us today to talk about her work in Cleveland and what the future may hold for her. Margaret, thanks for being with us today. It's good to be here, Dan. The YWCA, depending on where you live, could be a big part of your life when you're growing up or is when you're an adult or maybe not. Remind us about the mission of the organization. Our mission is eliminating racism and empowering women. Those are big tasks. <laughs> and we'll talk about some of the things that you've done to help make that happen here in Northeast Ohio. But for yourself, was the YWCA something that was part of your life growing up? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think growing up uh, really in the, in, the, in the 70s, it certainly was a big part of my life. At that time, the YWCA was involved in what I affectionately call swim and gym. And, you know, it was a place to go, um, much like the YMCA. We were sister organizations, although uh, we've gotten uh, divorced a long time ago. Great, still have a great relationship, but we are no longer um, conjoined. But certainly it was a very similar look and feel. There was lots of different programming, but certainly the swim and the gym was a big part of the uh, what lured me to the YWCA. And that's still part of it, right? I mean, kids can come, adults can, can still do all that stuff, right? It depends where you live. Certainly here in Cleveland, um, we really moved out of that model probably 20 years ago. Well, let's talk about your career path. How did you end up as the president and CEO of this organization here in Northeast Ohio? Well, I came to Cleveland uh, in late 2007, early 2008 to be CEO for Big Brothers Big Sisters. I had been with that organization for a number of years in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and there was a CEO position. I, I was on a, I was a member of the leadership team, a vice president in Dallas, and really wanted to come and grow my career. So I came to be the CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters. And in 2010, my predecessor, Barbara Danforth, retired, had had sort of a, a next phase in her life, and the job became available and open. And a, a board member I was in Leadership Cleveland with suggested I, I look at the position. So I did just that. You took over then 10 years ago. You come into this role. When you did take it over, what were some of the things you thought, here are a few things I really want to do during my time as, as the CEO here? You know, initially, um, you know, I often say that my my tenure with the YWCA is, is really in three different stages. Uh, the very initial phase, uh, maybe the first three or four years, I was just getting my arms around understanding the elements of this multi-service organization, uh, the community, um, the service delivery model, and um, what approach I wanted to take. And so I didn't know anything about early childhood education or housing or youth homelessness, all of these pieces, the YWCA was deeply involved with. And so I had a lot to learn. And, and then I began to move into really understanding what it might take um, to shift. And then in the, in the last stage, which really began in, in 2015 for me, 2016 um, in earnest, but um, you know, not long after the murder of Tamir Rice really began with that tragedy of that young boy to be committed to racial equity in a way where I was fearless. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's talk about the issue of homelessness for a moment. We just had uh, Linda Uvegas on from the City Mission, and we discussed just how dire the homeless situation has become, in particular during this pandemic. What are some of the things the YWCA has done, in particular during this time, to really deepen its commitment to helping the homeless? 
The homeless situation has certainly been um, brought to light during the pandemic, but I, I think that we have a serious homeless problem in Cleveland, and we're just at the beginning. I think we're going to see a tsunami of homelessness as it relates um, to a crisis in housing. I think that um, when you are already the poorest big city in America and uh, we have an aging population, we really, I don't think Cleveland understands what's coming at it. But yes, we have, we have had to expand our services into a second shelter during the pandemic. Part of that has been to uh, support a level of deconcentration in the shelter. Um, but that deconcentration is something that we had been advocates for um, from the moment um, we began operating the, the shelter uh, more than four years ago. Um, you know, we uh, need to do a better job with our social services uh, in Cleveland and begin to look at what it takes um, to solve for things. Um, the homeless system in Cleveland is a Band-Aid on a patient who's having a heart attack. The Norma Herwerman Center is something that's something you've been involved in the YWCA more and more over the last few years. Talk a little bit about the work that goes on there. Yeah, our work in the shelter is really centered on the women themselves. Um, women come and find themselves in a crisis of their housing uh, through a variety of situations. Sometimes it is um, linked uh, to employment. Uh, sometimes it is uh, co-occurring with uh, substance abuse. Um, substance problems. Sometimes it is um, uh, challenges with um, mental health issues that are uh, trailing or have not um, been uh, fully supported or, or, or diagnosed. And sometimes it's a little bit of all of those things. Um, certainly we see um, gender violence, which is um, a big story, another big story. Um, so many women in the shelter um, have experienced um, gender-based violence, and yet we tend not to think of women who, have, who are experiencing homelessness as being um, victims. And so the victimology is something that is um, that we have to fight very hard to help people understand uh, the victimology of women in the shelter, because we often put the blame on them. And so our work is around uh, supporting women, being centered on the women, being centered on our staff, and creating pathways um, to housing, to permanent housing, to permanency in making sure that they have built a network, uh, that they are connected into medical services, that they have safety plans. And so it is less of a prescription and more of a relationship. That's the work that we do. This notion though, that there, there's, there is this short-term solution of this person needs shelter, but that idea that not only do we have to give this person shelter for a week, but we need to help them beyond that. I, I think that's something sometimes we don't really think about that. It's not just, here's a place to sleep for a week. Absolutely. Yeah. We really need to begin to um, expand um, our understanding around housing and create more affordable housing um, in our communities. A lot of our housing has strings attached to it. And there are a variety of situations in which those strings uh, really preclude people from being able to, to gain housing. And, and I really think that we can solve for these issues. Of course, youth homelessness is something we care near, um, that's very near and dear to us. And, uh, you know, we have seen a growing population of youth um, who find themselves in a crisis of homelessness. 
Um, and we have a number of initiatives. Of course, we have a sister uh, project, a place for me that is housed but works independently of the YWCA. And a place for me is definitely focused on ending, ending youth homelessness, which I believe is possible. I had an opportunity to do a story about a place for me for the land, another one of the organizations for which I work. And I, this was fascinating. I didn't never really thought about this, this notion that a lot of times these kids who are in foster homes, you never think of them aging out, but all of a sudden they find themselves 17, 18, 19 years old and nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Um, n- no network, no safety net. Their networks are also fragile and, you know, being prepared, a uh, few, few 17 year olds are prepared to thrive on their own. When women participate or youth participate in these programs and YWCA helps them, is there any way to track how they do after they leave? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be in this business if we weren't tracking how they did after they leave. And part of that is because we have such deep relationships that we're able to maintain a level, a high level of connectivity um, with those that we have previously served. And that's the whole point. There aren't any income, there aren't any outcomes when somebody is in an initiative or in a program or in our building. Um, there are indicators, there are markers. But if somebody's telling you they have outcomes on, on people who just went through their program, outcomes live once someone is out and away from from your work, then you get to see not what what we did, if what they did is really taking root and also what needs to happen to continue to support them. And so we are in a relationship business, the YWCA. We do our work very differently from others. And because that relationship is there, we have that connectivity once people, you know, quote unquote, leave us um, to be able to continue know how know how they're doing. And we're intentional about that. We have strategies around that. And it's an important part of how we do our work and how we support our staff and how we tell our story to the community. In our conversation a little earlier, you mentioned the Early Learning Center. Again, tell us what goes on there, because I mean, that, that notion of helping people when they're really young helps get them on a better path. We have a very unique preschool. We call it the YWCA Early Learning Center. Sometimes we call it the ELC for short. Um, but it is it is unique. It is a, a one-of-a-kind uh, preschool, and we really felt like that was important to us. Of course, in all of our work that we do, we are really sort of advancing uh, racial equity and, and um, gender equity. But in the preschool, we are also supporting families that are experiencing a crisis in homelessness. And so most of our families, not all, but um, 80%, sometimes 85% of our families are experiencing homelessness at the time of enrollment. And so we are able to um, not only provide high quality early childhood education, we have a five-star preschool, but we wrap around the families at a very difficult transition very emotional transition, a very hard transition um, to be able to support them with whatever they need. And so that could look like, um, you know, supporting someone as they go through employment. It could be supporting someone as they are looking at um, challenges with substance abuse. Um, Whatever it is, we come alongside families in a way that is centered on them 
to be able to support, uh, you know, their uh, their growth. And it's amazing for us to see um, both the children succeed in early education and the families succeed in being able to attain a level of self-sufficiency and uh, be able to thrive. So we see families getting housed. We see them getting employed. We see them going into um, support uh, for um, their trauma. Um, you know, many of our children who come to us and many of the families have experienced deep, deep, deep trauma and adverse childhood experiences can affect people their entire lives. And we want to be able to help parents to understand how to really support their child and themselves through and out of very difficult situations um, and, and, and grow and thrive. That's what we all want to do, right? It's, it's, it's a beauty to be a partner with these families. Margaret Mitchell joins us today after serving as the president and CEO of the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. She's now moving on to become the CEO of the YWCA USA, and she joins us today for the Landscape of Queens Cleveland podcast. One of the things, Margaret, I know you were very dedicated to, as was the YWCA, was this work on having the racism declared as a healthcare problem, a healthcare issue. City Council passed that resolution in 2020. I think for a lot of people, they think of racism as a societal problem or a political problem. How is it a healthcare problem? You know, in 2019, we began to understand and formulate the, the thinking around racism as a public health crisis. Um, it was it was not a it was not a leap. Um, you look at health disparities, and so often uh, the thinking has been that health disparities are linked to the people, and we have not been able to really fully understand is how racism through the system, the medical system, and the people in the medical system play a greater role or a great role in uh, the, the healthcare issues of, of individuals. And so, and this is beyond, um, this is beyond access. This is um, understanding that one of the last uh, large surveys of, of medical students showed that medical students and residents, I believe it was the University of, of Virginia, believe that Blacks feel less pain. Now, you can trace this all the way back into a historical context of slavery. You can also look at this recent ruling by the NFL. The NFL finally admits that Black NFL players who had concussions they're, they're cognitive, right? This whole notion that they're less intelligent, right? As a race. And so it was more difficult to tell um, the baseline of their uh, brain health issues. And th this is a reality that is not real. Race, ra racism lives between our ears and what we have believed, what we've been taught and it has a real significant impact on the body. We could go on and talk about housing. We could talk about gun violence. We could go on and on and wealth gap. Um, but it all comes down um, to the fact that this is, this is a real problem that needs to be addressed. I can recall hearing somewhere one of the studies showed that doctors tended not to believe black women when they told them they had problems. They're like, no, nah, it's not that bad. And you hear these things and you're like, you've got to be kidding me, but obviously we're not. I, and it, it continues to go on. So you get this resolution adopted. What goes forward from there? 
Yeah, you know, I in 2019, I really thought that it would take a number of years to get the, the resolution um, adopted. And then, of course, the world had a experience in 2020 in succession tragedy as it related to Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, and then George Floyd um, that sounded an alarm. And the resolution, not only in, in, in Cleveland and in the county, um, but really across the state and also across the country. And, and, and you know, so the, the next step is really how do we go into the systems and operationalize change? And this is, this is scaffolding that has to be built um, that will span over a number of decades. We're really unwinding ourselves from 400 years of inequities. And in order to do that unwinding, we have to build the scaffolding that um, will run across um, decades in order uh, for us to begin to understand uh, what it will take to really be transformative and make change as it relates to the, the wage gap, the wealth gap, the housing gap, the healthcare gap, on and on and on, the educational gap. Getting those some of those institutions to change, the medical institutions, uh, as we start this process, do they seem cooperative? They, are they willing to acknowledge these things have happened and, and willing to move forward and start to look at some new ways to do things? I think we are seeing um, a changing of the guard. I think we are seeing um, a, a deep commitment, and I think we are seeing um, a total uh, lack. You know, the, the medical schools, the medical schools, right? We, we often point to uh, the hospitals, but I think we have to go deeper into the roots and um, hold the medical schools um, accountable. And I think uh, medical schools and nursing schools in this community need to um, really disrupt themselves and be willing to ask hard questions and go into their practices and their policies and make change and shift their thinking around teaching and then and then and then do it. Uh, racial equity, operationalizing racial equity is is duology. And, you know, this work is not, this is not diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And I think we sort of take these side trips and these rabbit holes thinking um, that if we just count the people, we'll, we'll, we'll get somewhere. If we just do an assessment, we'll get somewhere. If we just do some training, we'll get somewhere. And I don't think so. Finally, part of the YWCA's mission is to empower women. I know you're a busy person. Do you have much time to mentor or talk to young women about what it takes to move forward in the world? You know, I, I certainly make that a priority, very much focused on uh, young women. And I think it is an important part um, of our work here and across the country. It's the reason that the YWCA has, has thrived for 160 years nationally, 153 years here in Cleveland. And, you know, young women, I think, um, are going to uh, carry us forward, and young women of of color um, are certainly uh, going to be center um, in leading us forward. So, as you wrap up your tenure here and get ready to move on, what's the thing you think you might be the most proud of during your time at YWCA? You know, I'm I'm incredibly proud that our team internally has really done the work to understand inequities in ourselves and have 
changed and are changing a number of practices and policies um, and the way we do our the way we do our work. We don't um, what we do in the community. We do first inside our organization, and really that's what I'm most um, proud of. And I'm proud that uh, yeah I, I say I say that I spent five years being the imposter in chief, and it, it it was a tragedy that really shifted shifted my thinking. And I know for many, 2020 was a watershed moment. Um, and I Tamir looks so much like one of my sons that I just I could never shake it to this day. And I know that that had that that 2020 had that same effect on others. And my hope is that others will will join will join in doing the the deep work daily, regularly to disrupt their own thinking and that of the systems um, that they're in. Well, thank you for helping make that happen here in Northeast Ohio during your time at the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. Margaret Mitchell, thanks for joining us and good luck in your new job. Thank you so much, Dan. Good to be with you. Margaret Mitchell was the president and CEO of the YWCA of Greater Cleveland. She now becomes the CEO of the YWCA USA. She joined us today for the Landscape of Cranes Cleveland podcast. On behalf of our producer, Cody Smith, we're glad you could join us and we'll talk again soon.